going to be going through Acts chapter 7 today. Uh, but if you want to go to 6, and we'll begin in verse 8. And Lord, we pray that as we come to your word today, that you would, oh, just bring the application to us, Lord. Lord, let us see your holiness. Let us see your goodness. Let us see your grace and provision for us. Lord, let us see that in all of our insufficiency and inadequacy, uh, inability, you're moving. You provide a way. You are the initiator with great forethought on how to redeem your people uh, from lawlessness, from sin, from depravity. Uh, And you have, by your grace, set us apart as a a holy, special people, uh, just ready to live for you, God. We pray today that these wouldn't just be words that go in one ear and out the other, uh, that are left... um, hanging, Lord, but Lord, that you would apply them to our life and, and bring out um, good belief uh, and good behavior from good belief, Lord. Uh, we just pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Acts chapter 6, last week, Chris spoke to us regarding um, this ministry of table serving. And how while the apostles and the elders were serving the Hellenists, uh, there was neglect happening to them because of, uh, because there was so much practical ministry happening. They were neglecting the word of God in prayer. And so God gave them just this word of wisdom, uh, to set up what some have called the first deacon office. It may not be where the first, you know, uh, official deacons are formed, but many believe it is. I tend to see that as I've studied the word. And so you see these, uh, seven men full of the Holy Spirit, of good report, incredible qualifications that marked these guys. Um, out of those seven, only a few uh, do we know more about. Philip would be one of those. We'll see him in chapter 8 and later on in the book of Acts is called Philip the Evangelist. Uh, and then uh, Stephen would be one of the other seven that um, as maybe one of those first deacons, he then is, is set apart for even more things, just like Philip. Uh, in fact, it reminds me of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, that says, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And so here you have Stephen, you have Philip, and these two guys that will be serving at those tables well and just doing practical ministry for the church. And in that faithfulness, in being faithful, as Jesus says, in the little things, I'll make you ruler over much. Or as Zechariah says, who has despised the day of small things? You know, anyone who is in ministry knows that uh, those days of small things are beautiful things and wonderful things. Those days of chair stacking, table folding, table moving, lawn mowing, chair polishing, toilet scrubbing, uh, what my mentor John Wang said was serving in obscurity. You know, when you're content with just being with Jesus 
in the church bathroom on your hands and knees, praying for the people that use that toilet, you know, and just praying for their souls and praying for their heart. And, and, you know, you're just, you're serving Jesus. You're pulling weeds. You're, you don't care if anyone sees you. You don't have to be up front. You don't have to have a microphone. You don't have to have a pulpit. Just Lord, I just want to serve you. I just want to love your people. I just want to pray. And when you're faithful in the small things and to serve in obscurity, the Lord looks at you and says, that guy, that gal, I can use. And I'll get the glory. I know it. (laughs) And so you see that with Stephen. You're going to see that in all of chapter 7 in the first three verses of chapter 8, that the Lord saw him as one of those guys that his glory was safe with and that he could use as the first martyr of the church. You're going to see that with Philip, who would get that name, Philip the Evangelist, and revival in Samaria would be brought through Philip. The Lord would use him for that revival. The Ethiopian eunuch, and perhaps even the gospel spread into Africa, into Ethiopia, through Philip the Evangelist, who was content with the day of small things and serving the tables. So I want to encourage you guys. Uh, God has given each of you a gift to serve in this local body. He gives the ability to serve in the local body, and it may be a small and obscure place, and some people may never see it, and I may never know that you do it. Sometimes I'm just so surprised and, and I hear that, you know, some of you, oh yeah, did you know that they did this and they did that and they were down here pulling the weeds and they mowed the lawn and, and I'll just hear about it and I'm just like, what a blessing that is. I would have never known. No one would have ever known. And just what a beautiful thing that they did it for Jesus. And Chris and I were driving this week and I was just remembering old notes from Acts chapter six. And, and I just remember John Wang saying, why was it important that those deacons had those characteristics? Um, what were some of those? Uh, full of faith, power, um, uh, good reputation. Look in verse three. Uh, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. Why is it important that these guys who are just serving tables are full of the Holy Spirit, full of power, full of faith, of good reputation? You know, why does it matter? Because they're serving tables for Jesus. That's a big deal. You know, they're pulling weeds for Jesus. They're cleaning the bathrooms for Jesus. And, uh, and, and here we're going to see that, that this guy, Stephen, would be used in an incredible way here. Uh, Stephen is an awesome guy. We see in verse 8, it says that uh, Stephen was full of faith, full of power. He did great wonders and signs among the people. Uh, the, the literal translation of the original manuscript would say that Stephen was full of grace, full of grace and full of power. Is that something that marks you? Are you someone who's full of grace? Your speech is seasoned with salt. You make people thirsty for more of Jesus. When people talk about you, they're full of faith. They're just always stepping out into great ventures of faith for the Lord. Oh, they're just, they're just so gracious. You know, my wife's birthday was last week and, uh, a bunch of friends got together and made one of those tribute videos for her, you know, where there's about 28 minutes of people just from our past saying just beautiful things they love of Jesus. And it was just grace and compassion and, you know, and we're just all weeping and crying and laughing and, you know, and, and it's like, man, to have a tribute of you, do they say full of grace, full of faith? stepping out, full of power. Stephen's life was marked with power. And isn't that what the Lord Jesus said would happen when the Holy Spirit comes upon his people? Acts chapter one, verse eight. 
and you shall receive, do you guys remember it? Key verse of the book. I've been drilling it in for weeks on end. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And what, what happens when we're full of power? Oh, it's crazy. You're gonna do all kinds of weird and wacky stuff. I got the Holy Spirit on me. We're rolling around and got the goosebumps on the back. My hair's standing on end and I'm just freaking everybody out because I'm a big weirdo. That's not what the Holy Spirit is for. I'm sorry. The Holy Spirit is given to us so that we can be bold witnesses of Jesus. And when you see this deacon, this table server, full of grace, full of faith, full of the Spirit, there's nothing wiggity whack about it. He's going to go out. He's going to tell people about Jesus. Okay, that's what's going to be happening. And the Lord will grant signs and wonders in Stephen's life to point more to Jesus, to be telling people the gospel and validating the gospel. And so Stephen, introduced as one of the seven, uh, we see these fullness words, full of the spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, full of power. Um, it's a striking combination of being full. G. Campbell Morgan explained it as this guy was full of sweetness and strength. And Luke wanted it to be known that he was a man viewed with plentitude, (laughs) sweetness, strength, just full of God's grace, faithful in those little things. And, uh, and so we see there in verse eight that, He also did great signs and wonders among the people. Uh, These were things that, as Hebrews chapter 2 tells us, uh, the Lord would do that with his people or in front of the people to increase faith in him and to point people to trust in him. And so if you look at Hebrews 2, 1, it says, we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest we drift away For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And God also bore witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So God has been so gracious to the fathers in the past and then in many of our lives as well, to to prove and to validate the gospel in many miraculous ways. And if there's a neglect of the gospel, when he's been so gracious to give us the, the vindication and the validation of the gospel, the Old Testament's an example of, man, uh, what's the language that's used? How shall we escape? If we neglect so great a salvation. And so Stephen, full of grace, full of power, validating the gospel with signs and wonders. What's a, what's a, um, what is an evidence that this is something that affects us and is relevant to us? We may not be seeing people raising from the dead. We may not see people healed every day, although we do see healings today. Uh, we may not see all kinds of miracles here in 2022 Prineville and other ways we do. But one of the great miracles that this took place is that you're sitting here today. <clears throat> you're sitting, excuse me. <clears throat> Didn't do my vocal warm up. You got to really stretch the lips out. It really warms you up. All right. The fact that you're sitting here today, 2000 some years <clears throat> after Jesus is an evidence, even as Gamaliel said back in chapter five, 
that the things that were spoken are true and that the message of Stephen is right on. It was validated then, and so it was spread throughout the then-known world and the now-known world and is still being spread today. Amen? All right, so let's move on to verse nine. It's like you're totally fine all morning long, and then you get up in front of everyone and you start talking, and thanks, Shannon. Okay. My goodness. Okay. Acts 6, 9. Then there arose some from, uh, and you can just imagine everyone's excited that Stephen is so bold with the gospel and working these signs. I mean, who would, who would resist, right? Well, then there were some who arose from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen. So uh, we have a synagogue of worshiping Jews, perhaps even two different synagogues, something of men who were freed from Roman slavery. And so now they're worshiping in freedom in a synagogue and they don't appreciate this ministry of Stephen. Thank you so much, Shannon. I literally was just thinking I need to bring water out with me, but forgot. Uh, and so uh, I think it was Spurgeon that said, when God opens the windows of heaven, Satan opens the gates of hell and we're caught in the middle, <laughs> you know? And so, oh, all this, yes. And then, oh, here we're going to see more persecution. And we're somewhere in the middle of that. Uh, verse 10 says that even though they rose up and they refuted, <clears throat> they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And so one of those qualifications of being one of those first deacons was full of wisdom. And now even in this ministry and in his debating, his open debate, they couldn't resist and they couldn't oppose uh, the wisdom that they spoke. They had not reckoned with the caliber of the man they were opposing, nor the Holy Spirit, the God who had filled him up. Uh, The New English Bible says it that, It was the inspired wisdom with which he spoke. And you know, that's not just true for Stephen. That's true for us as well today. There's not one of us that when we leave this place on a Sunday morning with the charge to go out into the mission field and to tell people about Jesus that think that we have this message under wraps and under control. And man, I'm so glad I'm such a gifted golden tongued orator that everyone at my workplace is just going to like just drink what I have to say as, you know, um, the nectar of the gods or something like that. No, I'm not confident in my flesh, uh, but we, we are inspired with the Holy Spirit. We're filled up with God himself and we can speak with such wisdom as well. Paul says this in first Corinthians chapter two, verse three, when he tells the Corinthians, uh, my speech and my preaching, I think it's, uh, uh would be, uh, verse four, I'm sorry, in there, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power that your faith should not be in wisdom, but in the power of God. That's my prayer every Sunday as I come to the pulpit. Like people wouldn't see me or hear my great ideas, but they would see the Holy Spirit and his demonstration of wisdom and power that comes from the word and the ministry of it. 
Jesus himself said, don't worry about what you'll say that the Holy Spirit will teach you in that hour and bring to remembrance the things that you uh, had learned. In Romans 1.16, great memory verse, you probably haven't memorized, uh, it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel <clears throat> of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. So if you're armed with the weapon of the gospel, you can just unleash it. Right? You don't need to defend the God. You unleash the gospel because it is, it doesn't help with, oh, well, I decided this time to use the gospel when I told people about Jesus. Use the gospel, use the gospel, tell the gospel and trust that the gospel will powerfully bring salvation to people. Unleash the Bible. Let it do its work. As Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And so as Stephen spoke the word, uh, they were unable to oppose him, unable to refute him, the wisdom with which he spoke. And then as we move on to our verse 11, uh, that, so they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So these free men were thwarted in a good open debate. And so Stephen's opponents uh, began a smear campaign against him. As it's been said, when arguments fail, mud is often seemed an excellent substitute. Uh, it was Stott that said that. And he says, so uh, let us pray that we are delivered from ever resorting to use these tactics ourselves. You know, throwing mud. Um, and that's what they did. They had four accusations against Stephen that he spoke against Moses, spoke against God, spoke against the temple, which was a threat against their religious feelings and livelihoods. And they spoke against uh, that he spoke against the law of Moses. And they're called here false witnesses, even though technically what he had to say uh, was in a sense true. He was going against their economy. He was going against uh, their religiosity and self-righteousness that was apart from the gospel. And he wanted to bring the message of Jesus who didn't come to destroy the law, but came to fulfill the law and came to fulfill what the temple always pointed to. And so it wasn't necessarily true, but it was F.F. F. Bruce that said, they're called false witnesses. Although the report had a basis of truth, anyone who testifies against a spokesperson of God is in ipso facto a false witness. Uh, and so moving on to verse 12. So they stirred up the multitude, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him and brought him to uh, the council. They found themselves worsted in open debate. So they bring him to the Supreme Court again. And in verse 13, they also set up false witnesses who says, this man does not see speaking blasphemous words against this holy place, against the law. For we've heard him say this, Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us and all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him. They were staring at him. They were gazing at him. They saw Stephen's face and they saw it as the face of an angel. Or as F.F. Bruce said, it was a look that told of inspiration within, clear eyes burning with an inner light. You've heard the phrase, if looks can kill, you know? Uh, man, they're looking at uh, really some someone who's who's holy and who's been in the presence of the Lord, like Moses, who in the glory time with the Lord, he would come off the mountain and his face would also be shining. 
And so he's going to be telling these, this council about Jesus and his face is as uh, the face of an angel. Charles Spurgeon would tell his school of ministry, when you teach on heaven, there should be a glow on your face and a gleam in your eye and there should be a grin on your lips. But when you teach on hell, your own face will do fine. Yeah. And so there's this gleam in his eye, right? There's this twinkle in his eye as he stands to testify of the Lord. So moving on to chapter seven, and I may confuse our slides, folk, because I threw chapter seven way at the bottom of the slide presentation. Don't ask me why. I just thought you'd get bored and you'd want to find something. Um, so Acts chapter seven, verse one. So then the high priest said, are these things so? Are these accusations so? And he said, brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And so uh, his defense right now is a good history lesson. The Jews love a good story of, of God's faithfulness to them. They love their history. Uh, later on, we'll see Paul give his defense and he'll do the same thing. He'll give the story of God's faithfulness uh, to Israel. And so here we have uh, probably Caiaphas from Jesus's trial, still high priest, asking if these things um, were so. It was the, the procedure of these Jewish court hearings for people to give a defense for themselves. And so uh, Stephen is going to move and he's going to give this history lesson where some critics of this um, criticize it as a rambling and a dull and even incoherent speech. George Bernard Shaw, in his preface to Androlocles in the Lions, called Stephen a quite intolerable young speaker and a tactless and conceited bore. Shaw describes him as having delivered an oration to the council in which he inflicted on them a tedious sketch of the history of, Id of Israel with which they were presumably already well acquainted with. Others found his speech lacking not only in interest but in point. Debellius, for instance, wrote of the irrelevance of most of his speech. And yet others would see the Holy Spirit upon Stephen in this moment and, and trust that what the word is getting across was this was the fitting word at the right time for this council, for this moment of history, and for their accusations. And they would say that it is a master of logic and of scriptural knowledge. William Neal even calls his speech a subtle and skillful proclamation of the gospel. And one of the insistences of this speech, a major theme of this speech, is that the presence of God is not restricted to any one land or to any one material building, and that the presence of God and the faithfulness and the call of God and the initiative of God goes beyond any one moment um, of, of religious place or religious paper uh, uh, in Old Testament history, but that God was on the move um, from creation to Noah to Abraham and all the way through the Father's lives, even pre-temple, tabernacle, pre-circumcision, pre-law. And so uh, looking at verses 2 through 8 here, we're going to really try to cover some ground and get through this chapter today. Um, oh, and I should say, if maybe you're new to the faith and you've never really read the Old Testament, 
um, and it's, and it's kind of nudie and you don't really know much of the history of Israel or the history of the Old Testament. Uh, Acts is going to have a few different moments where these little history lessons, uh, come up and they're just helpful for you in your Old Testament history. So you may, uh, learn some things as we go through some of the story here. And so, uh, he says, uh, brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. And so Abraham dwelt in the, you know, the area of Mesopotamia, modern day Iraq and Syria is what Haran is. And so there's this, there's this nudge towards, uh, the, the Jews that are hearing this, that it, far from the promised land, far from Jerusalem, far from the temple is where God first revealed himself to Abraham. So don't get your bonnet in a bunch, you know, or your bonnet in a twist right now, uh, because you think that I'm speaking against the tabernacle when I'm speaking about Jesus, because the God that we served, he wasn't even care, didn't even have the care about the tabernacle. Uh, when you look at the first the first rites. Uh, you look at this, God was faithful to move in Iraq, in the area of Syria. And uh, Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 16 speak of uh, the faithfulness of the Lord to Abraham and Abraham's faith-filled behavior back to the Lord. It says that Abraham, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place with which he would receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And so I just like, you know, I'm, I dwelt in tents when I came into the promised land, Abraham says. I realized that this isn't the home. There's a, there's a city that the Lord is building that its foundations aren't made by man. It's made by God. This new Jerusalem that even we today look forward to. Uh, and the builder and maker is of God. And then Sarah is an example of faith. By faith, Sarah, Abraham's wife, also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude. Innumerable is the sand which is by the seashore. And these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, they were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they'd called to mind the country from which they'd come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he is prepared a city for them. And so uh, Hebrews, uh, it was written to some Jews who had been come under persecution and were being kicked out of their synagogue, kicked out of their home, written out of their will, and even killed for the testimony of Jesus. And they were thinking of going back to 
Judaism. They were thinking of going back to, you know, this reverence for the temple and, and an idolatry of the temple, and idolatry of angels and idolatry of Moses and all the things that are Stephen's being accused of here. And the writer of Hebrews, we don't know if it was Paul or Apostle, uh, Paul or Apollos, um, but he writes them and says, you don't miss the point of the temple. The temple was pointing to something bigger, the throne room of God. And so, and so was the tabernacle. Don't miss the Jerusalem. The Jerusalem was pointing to the new Jerusalem, the city of God where, where he will dwell and his people will be there forever, not made with hands. And, and so it was, uh, Bruce that said the opening words of Stephen's defense imply that the people of God must be on the march and must pull up their tent stakes as Abraham did, leaving national particularism and ancestral ritual and go out where God may lead. And so that has always been the Lord. You know, uh, I think it was Brian Broderson that taught me years ago that you got to be careful in all that you're doing in ministry because your road that you're on can become a rut and your rut can lead to rot. And so you look for those moments when the Lord might pop you up out of that uh, rut. You know, just you've been there, right? You're riding, driving off road and you get into those ruts and you're kind of like, you ever start to panic because you're like, I'm in this rut right now, rut row, you know, and then, uh, and then you're able to kind of, you look for that moment to pop up out of it. Um, it's especially scary if you're on a motorcycle or something, right? And uh, get us out of that rut lest we die. And it's the same with us. Like, oh, don't you know Calvary Chapel is always, in, and it's like, man, I just want to be led by the Holy Spirit, by the word of God and what we're to be doing as a church, you know? Um, and there's great heritage, don't get me wrong, but we got to just be careful for that rut that leads to rot. And, and he's speaking to the Jews here saying, you're, don't get lost in the weeds here um, and just get all hyped up about the law, the temple and the, the, the paper, the, the document and the building. Um, God's on the move and he's actually fulfilling the greater picture that all of the, the law and the prophets and the, the temple tabernacle, those were pointing to the greater and the better thing. Um, and so verses six through seven tell us, but God spoke in this way that Abraham's descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years and the nation to whom they will be in bondage. I will judge said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. And so you see God's grace that he gave the inhabitants of Canaan 400 years to repent from their horrible, filthy, grotesque practices. And moving on to verse eight, then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot uh, the 12 patriarchs. So here we are, we're already in verse eight. We've already gone through, you know, probably 600, 700 years of history from Abraham through Moses. And, the, and, uh, and, and it's in verse eight that the word then comes up. Then he gave them the covenant of circumcision. So, you know, we all get, you know, the Jews just would get so wrapped up in this uh, religious um, process of circumcision. And, uh, and he makes the point that no, God was saving and redeeming pre-circumcision. Um, and you can't miss Stephen's emphasis on the divine initiative here. And Romans 4, 1 through 4, um, and 9 through 13, I don't have time to get into it today. Um, but 
Paul just writes this incredible message towards that the circumcision externally is not what God values and sees as important, but it's the circumcision of the heart, the cutting away of the flesh, uh, not of not the circumcision from the letter, but the circumcision from the heart, that that is what the Lord would value. And Abraham's an example of that, that Abraham believed the Lord in, in Genesis 15, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And that would be years and years uh, before Moses ever uh, in, uh, instituted circumcision, um, or, or before Abraham even would institute circumcision, before the law would be given. And so uh, long before there was a holy place, there was a holy people to whom God had pledged himself. In verses 9 through 16, we see the patriarchs in Egypt, and the patriarchs becoming envious, sold Joseph to Egypt, you might underline, but God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all of his house. So, um, and so we're going to see in a little innuendo and a little uh, hinting towards Jesus, Joseph being a picture of Jesus, his brothers, the patriarchs hated Joseph, even though he had done nothing wrong. He was innocent. He was beloved of the father. And yet they would betray him for those pieces of silver. And, and, you know, there's these little hints, like, do you see where I'm going with this and what you've done with Jesus? Um, God was with Joseph. God was with Jesus. God gave Joseph favor and wisdom and delivered him out of all of his troubles. God is with Jesus and delivered him out of his troubles from the cross, from the grave. There's an empty grave there. Uh, Joseph delighted in the Lord and hated sin. Jesus delighted in the Lord and hated sin. In Acts 7, 11, uh, through 13, now a famine and a great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known uh, to Pharaoh. So there was a time of famine and great tribulation, a time of misery. And it wasn't until the second time that the brothers came uh, that they would receive him. Uh, the first time there was a young man telling his brothers his dream, then the second time would be a mighty ruler. And uh, you see just a picture of Jesus. The first appearance, it was in humility. Uh, the second time uh, he would come after those great tribulation times, and uh, he would come as a mighty ruler. And, and verse 16 of Acts 7, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid uh, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb of Abraham, uh, bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Again, Hebrews 11 references uh, not only Abraham, but Joseph. Uh, remember, Hebrews 11 is called the Hall of Faith or the Hall of Fame, the Hall of Faith, and just men who trusted in the Lord um, and believed in him. And, uh, Joseph knew that that promised land was a real thing. And so when he was dying, the hall of faith said, Joseph made mention of the departure of the children of Israel. And he gave instruction concerning his bones, that his bones should be taken back 
to the promised land. Uh, and that leads to the time period where Moses comes on the scene. In Acts seven seventeen. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. So you read Exodus 6 and you see that the Hebrews would multiply like rabbits and go from 75 people to 3 million people. And Pharaoh would try to kill the babies um, because this new work was starting. And, and so there's a little hinting there of, you know, you're wanting to kill as the Lord's trying to move. You're trying to quench the Holy Spirit and what God's doing. And you're being like a Pharaoh and you're trying to stop through violence and through uh, killing. And uh, the problem was really more spiritual than relational. As you look at verses 20, at that time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And, and you just see the providence, the hand of the Lord, God initiating redemption as God moved the current of the Nile to push that little baby basket into the arms of the most powerful woman in the world, Pharaoh's daughter, because God had a plan of redemption. God is on the move. In verse 22 of our text, as Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptian, as it was mighty in words and deed. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into to his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. So I just turned 40 this last year and it's the first time I've ever read this. And I'm like, whoa, he felt how I feel, you know, still kind of young, but starting to ache a little bit, you know, and he, he, 40 years old, raised in the house of Pharaoh, 40 years old, part of royalty, 40 years old, learned, uh, in all the wisdom of the Egyptian, uh, 40 years old, Moses was like Stephen, mighty in word, mighty in deed. And he ventures out something, you know, piqued his curiosity and he goes out to visit his relatives. And in verse 24, seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand but they did not understand. So you you hear what he's insinuating to the Jewish leaders that he's talking to here. He says, Moses assumed or supposed that his brethren would have understood that God was delivering them. Jesus assumed, you know, of course Jesus knew, but you would assume that that the Jewish people, when they brought him in on the donkey that day, that they would have humbled themselves and and not killed him, right? Um, but they did not understand. What did Jesus say from the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't understand, all right? Um, and uh, verses 26 through 29, and the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them saying, I mean, you can just picture. So one day he goes out, first day he goes out, an Egyptian is being harmful to a Jew. And so Moses goes and he kills the Egyptian. Okay. And then he goes back home and he probably was like, whoa, what just happened? You know, and probably like a, a Spider-Man moment, you know, like he just gets his web or whatever. And he's like, I have like a calling on my life. Like, these are my people. I got to like go redeem, you know, I'm going to go back out today. 
You know, so he goes out and, and this time he sees his own two brothers fighting, right? And, uh, and so uh, he says, guys, why are you wronging one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Same thing happens today. My kids were at the park the other day and they come back. I think they were with some of the Olkers kids and they all come back from the park, from Yellow Pine Park. And their eyes are really wide and all of them are just a buzz. And they're like, you guys, there were kids from our school, kids in Titus's class. They were there with their older brothers and stuff. And they were just cussing at each other the whole time on the playground and, and flipping each other off and cussing and yelling and screaming. And, and we were trying to be nice and trying to get them to be nice. And even Lainey said, if you guys are going to be mean to each other, you guys need to go home. And I was like, I, I see where this is going. And, and what do you think one of the kids said to Lainey? You're not the boss of us. Like, you see where that's coming, right? Classic, right? It's the same with old people. You know, when we are told a correction from the Lord on how we should be behaving. And what does he say? Man, right? What do they say? Uh, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? So Moses knows, oh, word has spread already about what happened yesterday then at this saying moses fled he just runs away became a dweller in the land of midian where he had two sons this is like a, a hundred thousand flyover right the book of exodus um and uh when 40 years had passed verse 30 an angel of the lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of mount sinai when moses saw it he marveled at the sight and as he drew near to observe the voice of the lord came to him saying I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. So 40 more years has passed. Moses is 80 years old when he's called to deliver Israel from Egypt. He goes through what's called God's seminary of brokenness where you can oftentimes be crushed in the process, but God begins to use that brokenness in your life. Uh, this angel, some would say it's even Jesus, a Christophany, uh, where he would end up saying, I am the God of, right? I am the God of Abraham uh, and Isaac. And uh, take your sandals off. This place where you're standing is holy ground. Uh, it is uh, the Christian application uh, in its Christian application, this principle of the burning bush passage is expressed excellently in William Cowper's poem, Jesus, where'er thy people meet, there they behold thy mercy seat. Where'er they seek thee, thou art found, and every place is hallowed ground. And so, in Stephen referencing the burning bush passage to people who are concerned that uh, Stephen is blaspheming the temple, Stephen goes back in their own history and tells them it was never about the, the building. And it was never about the, the custom. It was never about religion. God, and, and Jesus would say it to the woman at the well, 
Um, he, he wants to be with those that are worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And wherever he is, is holy ground. In verses 34 through 36, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, the Lord says. I've heard their groaning and I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he'd shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and the wilderness for 40 years. So Israel, you have a history of being pompous and not receiving the provision and the protection and the redemption of the Lord and even not hearing the wise person who would say, stop fighting with one another. And instead you say, who made you the boss? And the Lord has a history of saying, I've made him the boss. Okay, who made Jesus the boss? Where does he get this authority? The Father has made Jesus uh, with this authority. And so learn your lesson from your own history, uh, he speaks here. And, uh, and so you read of uh, the uh, Hall of Faith with Moses in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. And we'll read it quickly here. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he looked to the reward By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so uh, were drowned. And so these wonders and signs were shown by Moses just as they are being shown by Stephen. And here's where Stephen begins to bring it home in verses 37 and 38. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness, who the angel who spoke uh, with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles uh, to give to us. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord, uh, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Uh, I'm sorry, I was, I was, uh, Quoting from Acts chapter 3, verse 22, there for a second, Peter's sermon, he also references to the Jewish leaders or to the Jewish people that Deuteronomy 18 prophesied of a prophet just like Moses who would be uh, raised up. I used the same color code in my notes there, so I just started reading from Acts 3 there for a second. Uh, and so they rejected Moses in his first coming, and it wasn't till he came again with signs and wonders that they would receive him. It's the same with uh, uh, Jesus in his first and second coming. Uh, back in verse 39, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. 
And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days. They offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifice during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch, a false god that required child sacrifice, and the stars of the god Rephan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away uh, beyond Babylon. And... Uh, and so just quoting from Amos, he quotes that Israel had a history of, of uh, de-godding God and worshiping created things and things of physical substance rather than the creator, the provider, the protector, and the redeemer. And here in verses 44 through 50, Stephen gets into God's true tabernacle. In verses 44, our fathers had, uh, had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers having received it in turn also brought with Joshua into the land of possession by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the day of David, who found favor before God and asked uh, to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet Isaiah says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where's the house you'll build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all of these things? Uh, so God never required the temple. Uh, it was not a necessary thing. That was a, a, an act of David and Solomon and their desire. Um, and so uh, here we have Bible history 101 from Stephen. In the wilderness, the people blasphemed God's law because they rejected God's son who gave them the law. They valued the house of God more than they valued the God of the house of God. And so now he just gets right into, just with blunt force trauma, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so do you. That is a very stern and severe reproof and rebuke. And as I was praying over it, it's one that sometimes we need as well. Uh, just visiting with Chris and just talking about how our sheep in this church can sit through weeks and weeks and weeks of preaching from the word of God where the Holy Spirit is moving and bringing conviction and there will be no repentance and there will be no action and obedience to the things we profess to believe. And we can so quickly be just as stiff-necked, Old Testament idiom that's used to speak of a hardness of heart, and not allow the Holy Spirit to change us. And the book of James says that that makes us a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word. And we become like the man that looks in the mirror and sees all the blemishes on our face. And then just walks away from the mirror and forget what kind of a man we just saw. So James pleads with us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. 
that we would not be like these Jews who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, that we would be those that are New Testament Christians and have the Lord trim off our flesh by the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no place for flesh in us as Christians. And when we see it coming out, we've got to rebuke it and let the Lord rebuke it and bring correction to it. It's the heart of the Lord that we who profess great beliefs from Scripture also allow the Lord to work in us great behavior. And he goes on to keep correcting them. Uh, By the way, the New Living Translation of that verse says, You stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. And Hebrews tells us, today is the day of salvation. If today you hear the word of God and his voice, don't harden your heart. He said, which of the prophets in verse 52, did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you've now become betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. And they received that well, like, Thank you, Stephen, for correcting us. I remember the words that, you know, the, the psalmists say that, oh, he who the Lord loves, he corrects. And, and all the scourges that they receive, they're loving corrections. And, oh, man, what do we need to do to just right this wrong? No, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart or cut to the quick. And I don't know much, and Shannon's going to cringe right now, but sometimes I trim my dog's nails. And if you get a little deep, (laughs) you know what I mean? It's called cutting the quick. And they, you know, and you go, oh, it was Lindsay's fault, you know. Um, (laughs) You know, and it, it, it hits you where the heart's pumping, right? And that's what happened here. It was all of a sudden they had this yip moment, okay? The NIV says they were furious, Right? They were cut to the heart. Um, and that's what Hebrews tells us the Bible does, is that it, it's a surgical instrument that divides not only between bone and marrow, but between soul and spirit, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's why re- when you read the Bible, it's like it's always fresh, right for you from the Holy Spirit. Um, and so not only were they cut to the heart, but they gnashed at him with their teeth. They became animalistic and they ground their teeth in anger. And, uh, but contrast that with Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed up into heaven. The Lord gives him a vision of the throne room. He sees the glory of God. He sees Jesus in his ascended glory, standing at the right hand of God. And he says, look, hey guys, look. I see the heavens open and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. As you can imagine, this went over really well. You know, this, yeah, this is great. And they end up crying out with a loud voice, so they're grinding their teeth, they're cut to the heart, they're furious, they stop their ears. You ever do that when you were a kid and you were in a fight? Neener, 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 you know. We used to have a piano song, Mr. Frog is full of hops. That is why he always hops or something. And my siblings and I would be like, and that makes it better. <laughs> you know, and the fight goes on, right? Uh, and so 
Here they're all, and he's like, guys, look, the presence of the Lord is here. The gospel was just spoken to you from your own history. This would be a great time to repent, the presence of the Lord. And they're just like, no! And they rush, loud voice, and they all run at him with one accord, and they, they drag him. They cast him out of the city, probably to Golgotha, probably north of the town where that uh, where that execution grounds was, the same place that Jesus was crucified, very quite possibly. And they stoned him, uh, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a, the feet of a young man named Saul. And I've heard before that that when the when they would lay their, you know, it's like rolling up your sleeves or taking off your coat so that you can really get into the stone throwing and really get into the beating and the killing this guy. And I've heard that, uh, that whoever was the one who stood with the garments at his feet was the one who was really giving that consent and that green light to it. So uh, one way or another, it's going to say in verse 1 of 8 that Paul consented or Saul consented uh, to this death. Now, at the time, Saul, who is our Paul that we will know so well by the end of the book of Acts, um, he was a young man here, a young man named Saul. Uh, some have even uh, speculated that he's the young man that came to Jesus and asked what he must do to inherit eternal life. And, and oh, I keep the law, all of the law, but I have to give up my riches. Some some have said, I can't back that up or anything, but but perhaps, you know, or at least a similar type of a guy, a young man. And while he's being stoned in this brutal process of, uh, even some of the stonings used to be they would throw the individual off of a cliff before they would stone him. And Golgotha does have that rocky outcropping there. And as they stone Stephen, he was going through this process and had enough time to call on the Lord, who he's seeing there, and say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. To speak words that were very similar to uh, what Jesus says. And they all knelt down and they uh, cry. Uh, then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So being in the presence of the Lord, he's speaking forth the words of the Lord, uh, final words of forgiveness and just hope that there would be redemption for his killers. Uh, he fell asleep is, is what uh, death is spoken of for a Christian. A Christian need not, not to fear death any more than they fear their pillow at night, one man once said. Uh, Stephen here falls asleep. Bangle calls it a mournful and sweet word. F.F. F. Bruce says it's an unexpectedly beautiful and peaceful description of so brutal a death. Another man said, when Stephen died, he died like Jesus because in life he lived like Jesus. And then let's just, we'll get into it next week, but it's the conclusion to this Stephen stoning. 8.1, now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church was at Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Worship team, I should have had you come up a while ago. I'm sorry. You want to come on up? You can set your things aside and We'll just close in prayer. Will you stand with me? Lord, as we read a sermon that was, first of all, to these uh, Jewish leaders and to the free men, we are um, 
realizing that there's a, a lesson for us as well. There's the message of your power and provision and redemption. As we are thousands of miles from Jerusalem, we recognize that uh, you dwell in the temple of our hearts here today. You dwell in this place as we gather in your name to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we just want to say, Lord, wherever there are religious rites or um, religious rituals or traditions that we appreciate or value, and maybe we hold too tight to them, um, that we miss out on the gospel of grace and just serving one another in love. We pray that you would pry our hands loose of those non-essential things, Lord. And we would look to the source of life and the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. The better uh, tabernacle is the presence of the Lord. And so help us with that as we also fall into um, the religious uh, bondage like that. The, the road that turns to uh, a rut that leads to rot, Lord. We pray that you would pop us out of the rut and protect us of the rot today. And Lord, anyone in this place who came here and they don't know you, Jesus, they've not been born again, they're not Christians, and they just had a, a major history lesson that went over their head and then some. And Lord, may they just see in all of it that you are the God who moves and acts according to grace. You are the God who had great forethought and provision for your people and in redeeming your people, even us non-Jews who live in Oregon a couple thousand years later. And that even today, right where they're at, they would uh, receive that grace and open up their heart to you to work in them and to change them and transform them. They would receive forgiveness for their sins. And they would lay aside religious traditions and systems for the living God. Work, set, work the same salvation here in us, Lord. Go ahead, close us, you guys. Amen, you guys. Join us for Fireside Fellowship time. And uh, it's right in here in this room. Some donuts and coffee. would love to get to know you more. Have a great Lord's Day, a great Sunday afternoon. Amen. God bless you guys.